The theme that we have been looking at over the last several weeks is that Jesus is on trial. And I don't mean, of course, as we've hastened to add, that he was on trial yet in a judicial sense. He was on trial in a religious sense. As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark together, we have seen now, as we've entered the 12th chapter, that Jesus is at Jerusalem. He has identified himself as the king over God's kingdom, as the Messiah. And now the religious leaders of Jesus' day have gathered around him seeking to trap him in his word, seeking to trip him up. They are cross-examining him, and they are hoping that his words will be the ultimate downfall of him. They have asked him questions that might get him into trouble with Rome and the Roman government. They have asked him questions that might get him in trouble with his large following of people and make him no longer the most popular teacher in town. They have tried to show that he really doesn't know theology very well. Perhaps that he doesn't know exactly all the intricate details of their debates, the debates between Pharisees on the one hand and Sadducees on the other. And so far, he's passed every test. But his trial is not yet done. As we read here today in verses 28 through 34, a scribe came before him. In fact, if you look over in the book of Matthew at the, at the parallel passage, when this is told from Matthew's perspective, he says this scribe was actually a lawyer. I know all of you hate lawyers. We all do. And this one was no different. Um, this lawyer came to him, and Matthew 12, or, I'm sorry, the book of Matthew says that he was tempting him. Now, the idea of that word is actually just putting to the test. The same word is actually the idea is used of God. God doesn't tempt anyone, but nonetheless, this man was tested. He was put to the test. He was going to put Jesus now to the test, and he was going to quiz him about a common debate. And the point that I want to draw out today is that Jesus turns the tables. A man came to challenge him as a lawyer, and by the end, Jesus is challenging him. The challenger becomes the one who is challenged. The one who was the questioner is now questioned. Has that ever happened for you? The tables have been turned? You've been raising a, a problem with someone, an offense, and suddenly you're on the defensive? What just happened? I remember when I was working for a federal judge, and, and we, I was his clerk. I would help him write opinions and think through legal issues and do research. I remember reading a transcript from a man who had been convicted of a criminal offense, and he was now appealing his decision up to this Court of Appeals, and I'll never forget, I was reading in the transcript of his proceedings in the lower court before a federal judge, this man was one of those sovereigntists who believes the laws of the United States don't bind him. He is his own sovereign entity, his own sovereign nation, if you will. He can do what he wants. And so as the judge was sitting in authority over him, he began ranting and going on a spiel about the authority or whatever. This judge was acting outside of his authority. And then there was a line in the transcript that I'll never forget. He said to the judicial marshal, kind of the federal officer, he said, Marshal, arrest this man. And he was referring to the federal judge. I thought, wow, that's a real attempt to turn the tables, isn't it? 
Marshall arrest the federal judge sitting in authority over me. You'll be surprised to learn that the marshal did not, in fact, do so. Uh, and it ended the story with this man being, uh, uh, ending up in, in jail himself. Well, here Jesus on trial completely turns the tables. And in fact, here in this story, the tables have turned in Mark 12, as we're going to see in the next few weeks. You'll see next week, God willing, that now Jesus is challenging the scribes and the authorities. And the week after now, he is the one questioning them. He is the one indicting them. He is the one convicting them for their failure to live up to what God has intended from them. The tables are turned. The title of the message this morning is simply, Jesus on Trial, the Tables Turned. Jesus on trial, the tables turned, and I hope that you will focus in with me as we look at the question that Jesus is asked, and ultimately the question that he really challenges this scribe with, and all of us with this morning. I want to start, first of all, by talking about the teacher challenged. The teacher challenged. Because really what's going on here is a direct follow-on what we've been looking at from the last several weeks. If you have your Bible this morning, would you have it open with me to Mark chapter 12 and verse 28? Again, perhaps you have it on a tablet or a phone or a device. Let's all be looking at the Bible as we're able this morning. Verse 28 tells us, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him. Now just pause here for the context for a moment. The context here is that Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees. The Sadducees came to him asking him a, a, a question intended to trip him up about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They wanted to make Jesus look dumb. But of course, like everyone who had challenged him before, Jesus made them confront their own ignorance of the scripture. Jesus taught that there is indeed a resurrection. There was indeed going to be an account before God. And now the Pharisees, they listened. If you were here last week, you saw that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were bitter rivals about this question. So if the Sadducees got stumped, if the Sadducees got silenced, the Pharisees are saying, yes, nice, so now these Pharisees, the scribes would have been among the Pharisees. This scribe, this Pharisee, hears Jesus silence the Sadducees, and he's thinking, hey, well done. Nice job. And then he steps forward and says, well, Jesus, I got one for you. I got a question for you. What you're going to see here, though, is that this question was a little bit unlike the previous ones. The previous ones were simply trying to trap him. This one, actually, we're going to find has a little bit of sincerity in it. Notice the question that he asks him. Which is the first commandment of all? Now you need to understand here, he's not asking Jesus what's the first commandment. Like, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Well, thou shalt have no other gods before me. No, that's not what he's asking. He's asking what is the preeminent commandment? What's the most important one? What's the biggest Commandment. Now, again, you need a little bit of context here about who this challenger was. You see, the man speaking here was a scribe. 
And this scribe was, as we learn in Matthew, a lawyer. Now, it doesn't mean that he was a lawyer in the sense that we have lawyers in our civil system today. He was a religious lawyer. He was the one who thought about very difficult, complicated questions of the Old Testament Mosaic Law that you can read in our Bibles here in, in uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, seeking to bring out every aspect of those ideas. In that way, he was a little bit like a law professor. I remember one of my law professors in school, a brilliant man, he taught on the subject of federal courts, and he would do this when he was working through a question with us as a class. He would put his hands together, and he would put it down, and oh, he just looked so smart. He just looked so smart. He was just really working through it together. And he would ask us these questions and bring out these intricate details of the law by trying to stump us and bring out the answer. I remember another one. He would come to class in this bow tie, Oh, man, he was just very distinguished older gentleman. And he, he would always come with a cup of tea, and he would, put in the, he would put in the tea bag, and he would just carefully bring this in as he was kind of pondering and talking about elevated questions of the law. So smart, right? That was, that was these scribes. What does Moses mean here? Hmm. In fact, I'll tell you something about the Old Testament law. One commentator of the Jews identified 613 laws in the Old Testament. 613. Well, if you've got 613 laws, then you better start categorizing them, right? So they would start putting them together and these ones go with this one and this one is more important than this one over here and these ones are the, the biggest ones, the most important ones. In fact, there's a story that's found in the Talmud when a Gentile, a heathen man to the Jews, came to two of the foremost rabbis of the day, one a man named Shammai and one a man named Hillel. Now, if you're remembering, you remember we talked about those two rabbis on the subject of divorce. Both of them taught differently on the subject of divorce. Well, the Talmud refer, uh, relates a man coming to both of them and, and, and challenging them, saying, I will become a proselyte. I will become Jewish religiously if you can tell me what is the most important, if you can teach me the Torah while I stand on one foot. I think he was just saying, you better do it simply because I don't have that good balance. Can you teach me the Torah while I stand in one foot? And, and the story in the Talmud goes that Shammai um, literally like drove him away with a, with a ruler or something like that. He drove him away. He just was upset. Here, stop provoking me. Get out of here. And you know what Hillel said? Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is the commentary thereof. Go and learn it. You want to know the whole Torah in one word? Don't do to your neighbor what is hateful. And, and if you've got that, the rest is just commentary on it. Go and learn it. Go and do it. See that idea. What's the most important? What's number one? The commentator Barclay identifies two other sayings of rabbis. One rabbi had said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is the greatest general principle in the law. Same idea. What's, what's the greatest one? You see, this was a debate among the people, the, the leadership of Jesus' day, and so now they're putting in front of this teacher. Hey, what do you say is number one among the 613 laws in the Old Testament? 
Now notice, secondly, what I'm going to call the commandments that are central. The commandments that are central. Well, you see how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Now, do you see that Jesus answers him really directly? There's no beating around the bush. There's no kind of getting around to the truth through the back door or the side door. He says, you ask me what the first commandment is? I'll tell you what the first commandment is. Here it is. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you probably have a recollection of where that's from. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and onward. This idea is the central claim of all Judaism, even to this day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God. He is, the Lord our God is one Lord. In fact, you may know that this comes from the Jewish prayer. This is part of the Jewish prayer called the Shema. The Shema is recited twice a day by observant Jews. It begins their services today in Orthodox synagogues. If you went to a Jewish synagogue this morning, you would hear the Shema recited like their creed. Maybe some of you grew up in a church where the Apostles' Creed was regularly recited. How many of you grew up in a church where the Apostles' Creed was regularly recited? You know exactly what that is, right? This was, this was and is their central creed. In fact, I went to a site just to check this out, Judaism 101. Sounds like a pretty good site, right? Judaism 101, here's what they say. The Shema is one of only two prayers that are specifically commanded in Torah. He says, it is the oldest fixed daily prayer in Judaism, recited morning and night since ancient times. In fact, not only is this passage in the Shema, it's actually in what is called the mezuzah. How many of you have ever heard the term mezuzah before? The mezuzah. The mezuzah is, is, is a box that is placed over the doorposts of every door, or of most every door, in a Jewish person's house, at least in an Orthodox Jewish house. Hey, do you, if you were to go into certain buildings, if you were to go into a hotel in Israel, you'd probably see that, that um, box, and what would it contain? It would contain this kind of parchment in which this is written. Interesting thing. This is at the very heart of Judaism. And what does Jesus say? This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Friend, have you ever wondered what God expects from you? Have you ever wondered what, if there is a God up there and he created you, what does he want from you? Jesus said, this is number one. Number one. We should just step into this for a minute, shouldn't we? What does it mean to love God with all your heart? The idea here, I think, is speaking of something about your sincerity. You're not coming to God on the outside without your inside being engaged. You're not going through the motions. You're doing it with all of your sincerity, with all of your, of, of your focus. It's your, your heart is in it. What we might say is you're doing it heartily. You love God with your heart. 
what would it mean then to love God with your soul? I think this idea here is speaking to your feeling, to your emotion. You all know of, perhaps if you're a parent, you tell a child, pick that up. Okay. There is nothing about that obedience that is of their soul, of their feeling, of their emotion. You love God with your soul, with your feeling, with your emotion. It is attuned. What do you think it would mean to love God with your mind? It means to love God with your intellect. You don't turn your brain off. In other words, God wants love that's thinking love, not just is feeling love. Perhaps you've been around a kind of Christianity that seems to be based only on feeling, only on emotion, only how inwardly I'm feeling right now. But our minds are turned off. We're only repeating mindless phrases about God and stirring up our emotion, our feeling. God says, no, I want you to love me with your, your brain, with your thinking. Yes, with your feeling. Don't turn your feeling off either. But you need to come to me with your mind, with your thoughts, with your intellect. So what would it mean then to come to God as well with your strength? That means everything. Your energy, your activity, your work, your duties. So we've seen that Loving God like this is loving God sincerely. It's loving God emotionally. It's loving God thinkingly. It's loving God actively, energetically. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, with all of your heart, every last bit of your sincerity, every last bit of your feeling, every last bit of your intellect, every last bit of your energy, love him with all of it. Now, at this point, I, I think about the only thing I could, I could liken it to is how the earth relates to the sun. The earth revolves around the sun. The sun is at the center of our universe. Everything about our life here is connected to that sun. Everything that we experience in our daily life is oriented around that sun. That sun is at the center of everything. And Jesus is communicating that. He says, what's the great first commandment? Let God be at the center of everything in your love. Everything. Do you know, friend, the way that you love God with everything? By letting everything be an act of love toward him. Do you know there's no part of your life that's not sacred? There's not one part? Oh, I go to church and I do the sacred parts of my life, but then I leave church and then it's just the ordinary. No, there's not one thing you do that can't be sacred. That's why Paul tells us to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, because everything's sacred. When you get up with your alarm in the morning, that can be sacred if it's out of love to God. When you enjoy God's creation by going out for a hike or for a walk on these beautiful days, that's sacred if you're doing it out of love for God. When you enjoy your spouse and you have communion and fellowship with your spouse, it's sacred if it's done out of love for God. Every word out of your mouth can and should be sacred to God when it's done out of an act of love 
toward Him. This is your everything. That's what He commands. What does God want from you? That. He is the sun at the center of your solar system and mine. That's what He demands. Now let me, let me pause there for just a minute because this may not be true for all of you, but it may be true for some of you and I just want to address it really quickly. Some of you may respond to that and say, well, that sounds like some people I knew like an abusive dad or an abusive husband who said, love me, and then never did anything to deserve it. If there's a God up there in heaven, why would he look at us and say, love me? That sounds like an egomaniac. Worship me. Well, that sounds proud. And I want to address that really directly. Why should God command you to love him? Why should he? Well, let's start here, friends. The Bible tells us that he made you. God has the right to tell you and I, his created beings, to love him. I saw something absolutely hilarious, but also tragically sad recently. I I read about a, a lawyer who submitted a brief to a judge. Some of you may have seen this. Just recently, and he asked ChatGPT to write the brief for him. Some of you have heard of ChatGPT, the artificial intelligence bot that has been making waves all over and creating all kinds of ethical questions. He asked ChatGPT to write the brief. And do you know what ChatGPT did? It wrote a beautiful brief for him with entirely fictional cases that it cited. I kid you not, it literally made up the case names. It made up what they stood for. It it made up everything, but it supported his argument. And so he just read over it. It didn't look like it was any problem. And he submitted to the judge. And what do you think the judge found out when his clerk started going and looking up the cases and said, none of these exist, Your Honor. They don't exist. I can tell you that lawyer is in big trouble. And it's been a very cautionary tale for all lawyers. You better not rely on ChatGPT. You see, what's the question that this is raising? Is ChatGPT just making stuff up? Is it literally just creating stuff? Was it trained to do that? You see, what is the fear of artificial intelligence? That it's going to turn on us one day. That we made it, but it's going to turn on us. It's the stuff of science fiction legend, right? Of movies. Are we going to be destroyed by the machines that we made? You see, ChatGPT is made. It is created. We're worried it's not going to be submissive to what made it. It's the same thing for any of us who have heard those awful stories about a child who turns on his parents and maybe even kills them or harms them in some way and our hearts just rise up in indignation. That's wrong! You love your parent. Your parent brought you into the world. Your parent sacrificed for you. Your parent has given everything from you. You owe your parent love and respect. And in the same way, God says, I made you. I made you. You are mine. But if we stop there, we miss the whole point. It's not just out of duty that God commands us to love him. He commands us to love him because of our delight. You say, what do you mean? I mean that the only way that I can truly have a fulfilled life is if I am in a right relationship with the one who made me. The only way I can have true lasting joy is if I am in a relationship with the one who gave me life. Do you see? 
I want you to imagine for just a moment as this beautiful June sun is baking down and giving life and light to our plants and to our vegetables and to our fruit. Can you imagine a plant getting up and getting upset one day? How dare you, Mr. Sun? How dare you order me to open my flowers toward you during the day? Have you ever seen an indoor plant? Do you notice how it always snakes toward the window? toward the source of light, it grows toward where the light comes from. Can you imagine a plant getting resentful and saying, how dare you? I'm going to turn my back on you, Mr. Sun. I'm not going to be under your rule. I'm not going to be oriented toward you. The sun would respond and say, you're a fool. Don't you see that I'm your life? I'm your color? I'm your vibrancy? I'm your fruit, that without me, you have no life at all? The, the son could rightly say to that plant, love me, it's in your best interest. And in the same way, God does not tell you to love him with everything you have to place him at the center of your life because he's some God up there who just likes people groveling in front of him. God tells you to love him with everything you have because like the sun, he is the only life that you have. He is the only joy in lasting terms you have. He is the only peace. He is the only fulfillment. He is the only satisfaction. Only when you are rightly oriented to your God who made you can you experience his life fully and eternally. He, he commands you to love him because he loves you. And he knows that is the only way that you will be fulfilled in the life that he has given you. He says, love me. It is for your good. Now let me stop here for just a minute, friends. I want to ask you this. Do you love God like that? Do you love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength, with all of it? I was so challenged this week as I just thought of this. I, I remember something my father used to say so helpfully. He said, where does your mind go when it is at neutral? Where does your mind go when it is in neutral? Never forget that. Never forget that. It's so wise. Where does your mind go when it is in neutral? Friends, that's what you love. That's what I love. What do we love? We love what we think about. What is what you think about? What does that say? about whether you love God. You see, I, I, was so, I was so challenged as I thought about this, I just had to stop and confess. It's like, God, where does my mind go when it's at neutral? How often, when our mind is in neutral, do we go to hobbies? Do we go to people? Do we go to relationships? Do we go to romance? Do we go to work? It's not necessarily wrong to think about those things, but when I compare it, how often my mind, when it is in neutral, when I don't need to think about anything, it doesn't go to God. What do I love? What do you love? Maybe for some of us, the first thing we need to do today is say, God, you know I don't love you like I should. I don't love you like you command me to for my good. Wow, that hit me hard this week. Now, what's the second thing that Jesus says? Will you notice? This is the first commandment. Verse 31 says, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. 
He said, there's another one that's like it. That's like it in what it is asking of you, in, in, in what it is demanding of you. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus here. Now, don't get confused. When he says neighbor here, he doesn't just mean the person next door or across the street. In fact, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, I won't retell it, but some of you may remember that story. He's intending to teach what your neighbor is. He's really saying anyone you come across is your neighbor. Anyone you come across can be your neighbor to love. And I just want to tell you something that was really helpful for me as I thought of this. Pastor Mark Minnick, a, a wonderful expositor from South Carolina, brought this out very practically, I thought, and I'll share it with you. The real aspect of loving your neighbor as yourself is simply practically the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And think about this practical way. This is what Pastor Minnick said. He said, if you were to go into a restaurant and see, come across a waiter, if you were to be a waiter or a server in a restaurant, you wouldn't expect the people in your restaurant to turn around and give you their inheritance, would you? You wouldn't expect them to sign over a, a new down payment for their house. But you, you wouldn't expect that. But do you know what you would expect and what you would hope? You would say, I hope that you'll love me like a server, like a waiter, in the generosity of what you leave, in the kindness of your words. And here's what Pastor Minnick said, love your server like you would want to be loved in their shoes, in their position. You know how challenging that is? That everyone I come across, I'm to stand in love in their shoes and say, how would I want to be treated if the, if the roles were reversed? And then love them like that. You know how practical this is? When you're a coworker this week at work, how do you love to be treated by your coworkers? Then treat every one of the rest of your coworkers like that perfectly. How do you like to be treated when you come in as a visitor to a new church by the people who are around and you treat every visitor at Straight Gate Church like that? How do you like to be treated by your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in hospitality and in invitations over and time spent? Well, then you treat your brothers and sisters in the fellowship like that, just like that. Jesus says, you want to know what the two commandments are? Do you know what, what God's demands on humanity are? Love God supremely and love others selflessly. Love God supremely, love others selflessly. That's what God expects. Wow. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? That's what God expects. And that's why I need to look thirdly here at what I'm going to call the scribe challenged. Jesus has given a wonderful answer, and the scribe knows it. Do you want to know it? Look, let's look at what the scribe says in verse 32. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, teacher, thou hast said the truth. You know what you would have said? Well said. Good job, Jesus. That was pretty wise. That was pretty smart. Notice what he says. For there is one God and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love His neighbor as Himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered discreetly, He said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst or dared ask Him any question. They didn't dare ask Him another question. 
the tables have been turned. But friends, I want to focus in on that last statement that Jesus made. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Scribe, you're not far. Now friends, you need to understand the context of why this would have been so surprising. The scribes were the religious experts of that day. The religious experts. If anyone was in the kingdom of God, it was them. And do you hear what Jesus is saying to him? To the scribe who came with a fairly sincere question and who receives a, a, an answer of, 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 or gives an answer of commendation to Jesus? Jesus says, you're not far. What's the implication? You're not in. Say it after me. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Do you know it's not enough to be close? Do you know if you're a football player, it's not enough to have the ball on the one-yard line if you don't get in the end zone? If you want to get a ho in a house, it's not enough to have the key. And it's not even have the key against the key latch. It's not enough to get in. He was not far, but he was not in. So what did Jesus mean when he said, you're not far? You're not far from the kingdom. Let's look at it really quickly. Will you notice with, in verse 32, he says, Well, master, teacher, thou hast said the truth. He was close to the kingdom because of his respect for Jesus. He wasn't coming to insult him. He actually recognized and respected the truth that Jesus had given. He said, You said the truth, teacher! He acknowledged who Jesus was. Friends, do you know all around the, the, the country today, you will find people who say Jesus is a good teacher and he tells the truth and we should listen to him. They're close to the kingdom, but they're not in. They're not in. That's not enough to think Jesus said wise words. That's not enough to get in the kingdom. It's a good first step. Notice what also he said. He said, for there is one God and there is none other but he. This man was close not just because he respected Jesus, but because he accepted God's exclusivity. What's exclusivity? There's only one. Friends, that's controversial in today's world. If you were to go out into this city and proclaim the word, the word that there's only one God, he is Jehovah God, as he is presented in the Bible, you would run into all kinds of controversy. This man didn't have any problem recognizing that there was only one God and there was only one path to him. He accepted the exclusivity of God. That was at the heart of Judaism. But will you notice what's next? He says, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He said, that is greater. Now let's just pause here for just a minute so we understand what he's saying. What are the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices? That was what God commanded people in the Old Testament to approach him in worship. When people were sinners, they knew they were sinners. They came to God with a sacrifice and God commanded them to. And he said, this is the picture of your forgiveness before me, your right relationship before me in this sacrifice. And what Jesus is recognizing and what this man is confirming is that at all times God has wanted your heart before he has wanted what you can give him with your hands. 
God has wanted what is on the inside before he demands what is on the outside. When people would come to him with burnt offerings and sacrifices without any heart of love, without any heart of humility for him, God says, it's worthless. You say, why is that relevant today? It's relevant for this reason. If you were to go out into this city and you were to begin to challenge men and women about their standing before God, do you know what you'd hear from many of them? You're right, I've got to get back in church. You're right, I've got to start reading my Bible again. I've got to start praying more. You're right, I, I'm out of step with God. And God's command to them is, yes, you should go to church. Yes, you should read your Bible. Yes, you should pray. But don't you see that the first thing I want from you is your heart? And when I have your heart, the others will follow. The others will follow. It's, I believe, St. Augustine who said this wonderful phrase, love God and do what you like. Love God and do what you like. Is that saying the other commands of God are important? No, they're all important. But what he's saying is God wants your heart. He wants you to love him with everything. That is the, the, the foundation of your pleasing him. He respected Jesus. He accepted the exclusivity of God. He knew what God desires. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He knew his Old Testament. He knew the truth about what God wanted. So you say, well, then why wasn't he in? How could Jesus look at this man who was sincere toward Jesus, respected Jesus, accepted theologically the truth about God and what he desired? Why wasn't he in? Why was he only close? Because it's the purpose of what these commands were getting at the whole time. He didn't need a teacher, friend, first. He came to Jesus as a teacher, and then he left him as a teacher. He said, well, you said the truth, teacher. But ultimately, Jesus didn't say these words to be a teacher. He didn't say these words to be your teacher or my teacher. Why did he say these words? Well, let me ask you this, friends. Have you ever one day in your life perfectly loved God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength? Have you ever perfectly done that, like God demands? One day? One day, have you ever perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself? Perfectly. One day. Would any of us be willing to raise our hands and say, I've done that perfectly one day? I couldn't. I couldn't. What is God communicating to us? Is he holding up a high standard? You love me with everything. You love your neighbor as yourself. You're never going to reach it. What's he trying to communicate to us? He's communicating to us that we are in desperate need. These commandments are not for you and I to just start trying to work harder on. These commandments are designed for you and I to fall down in humility before God and say, God, I have failed. I have sinned. I have not loved you like that. I have not loved my neighbor like that. I am a sinner. That's why this man was close. He knew it intellectually. He knew the standard. He knew God's desire for him. And yet, as, as, as to this point, he had never fallen down in humility before a holy God and said, God, I am a sinner who deserves your judgment because I don't live up to your standards. Prince, he didn't need a teacher. 
He needed a savior. He needed a savior, the one who was standing in front of him, who every day of his life had perfectly loved his father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. The one who, as we've been seeing throughout the book of Mark, perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. That is Jesus. And the gospel stands before every single one of us and doesn't say, do this, measure up to God's high standard, and you will live. That's not what the gospel says. And as long as your relationship with God is based on by what you do, I am doing you'll be no more than close to the kingdom, but not in. It is only when when you understand the true words of the gospel, he has done so you can live. Not do this and live. He did. Therefore, you live. What did that scribe need to enter into the kingdom to move the ball from the one-yard line into the end zone? He needed to fall down in humility before that teacher and say, oh, I have failed. All of my study, all of my pride, all of my vanity, I lay it down. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. That's what he needed. And friends, I say to you today, there's only one way for you to get over the, 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 the goal line. There's only one door for you to go in. There's only one way to enter the kingdom and not just be outside of it. It's that you humble yourself in repentance before God to say, I haven't lived up to your standard. And it's to embrace by faith the person of Jesus Christ who has lived out those commandments perfectly so that by coming to him as Savior and Lord, your Salvation is in him. Oh, I just cannot imagine how many people in this world today will die at the one-yard line. They'll die right outside the door. They respect Jesus. They listen to Jesus, what he says, his moral teaching. They submit to God as the exclusive way. They know generally what he desires, but they've never entered in. They're not far, but they're not in. And oh, I pray this morning, friends. I don't care whether you've been going to this church for 20 years or for two weeks or for two hours. It's for all of us. This challenge is for all of us. Are you not far? Or are you in? We're only going to find that by coming to Jesus as Savior.